Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. And uh, chapters 50 and 51, we're not going to get through all of it today, um, but chapters 50 and 51 is basically one prophecy, and it's regarding the destruction of Babylon. Now, when we get to the end, which we won't, like I said, we won't get to it today, but uh, Jeremiah, we find out, was told to write this book, uh, this prophecy in a book. He gave it to a man by the name of Sariah. And uh, Sariah went as an ambassador for King Zedekiah to Babylon in the fourth year of Zedekiah's reign. Once in Babylon, Zariah was to read the copy of this prophecy, presumably to the Jews, because the Chaldeans, they probably didn't speak Hebrew, but there were Jews that had already been brought to uh, Babylon by that time. And so it would probably, most likely, be read in their hearing. And, uh, and then he was to take that book and uh, throw it into the, Euphra- into the Euphrates River and allow it to sink to the bottom. And what it was symbolizing is how the Babylonian Empire would also sink in due time. So we have a date for this prophecy, and it was given uh, seven years approximately before the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, because we can tell that by the reign of the kings. And it was about 77 years before this prophecy was fulfilled. And so it continues here in verse 1. It says, Declare among the nations. Proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim. Do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Bel is shamed. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north... A nation comes up against her, which shall make her land desolate, and no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. And like I said, this was fulfilled about 77 years later by the invasion of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire. Bel and Marduk that are mentioned in this were uh, two Babylonian deities. Verse 4, In those days... And in that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come. They and the children of Judah together, with continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten. You know, I look at the condition of our society today, I look at our nation. And, uh, you know, we as a nation need to repent. And, and, you know, you've probably been in churches where you've heard pastors speak, we need a revival in this land. And that is true. But, you know, down through the ages, and especially in the in later ages or later times, there's been some revivals that, you know, you look at and you go, well, was that really a revival? Or was that just something, you know, a wind of doctrine that was moving through the church? What does a true revival look like? What does a true repentance look like? And I think we have a beautiful picture here and what God is saying what the Israelites were going to do. First of all, there'd be weeping. Weeping. That means they'd have godly sorrow and mourning over their sin. In the New Testament, with the, with the Holy Spirit, that, that's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sins. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul writes, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, 
not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So it's a godly sorrow. So repentance, uh, you know, there, there's or the revival, true revival, true repentance, it's accompanied with just grieving over our sin, what we've, what we've done as a people. But it's not just sitting and weeping, but it's going and weeping. They're going and seeking the Lord. And that means to go in search of or try to discover. You know, I think about it when I was first dating my wife and... and uh, you know, there was that romance that started. And, you know, part of that romance for me was trying to, you know, I was seeking her out. I wanted to be everywhere where Teresa was, you know. You know, I wanted to find out all I could find out about her. I mean, my focus was Teresa. Well, that's the focus that we need towards God, where we just want, we're seeking him out, um, trying to discover more about him. You know, the thing is, if you or if I seek the Lord, you know what the Bible says in Hebrews 11, verse 6? It says, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If you're here this morning and you came and you're like, I just want to hear from the Lord. I I really want the Spirit to speak to me this morning. If you're diligent, I mean, if you're serious, God is going to reward you. He will speak to you. Not only that, but they were going to ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it. What, what does that mean? Well, that means basically that they'd be steadfast in their purpose. They wouldn't be turned aside by any difficulties on the way. You know, I, I recall when I rededicated my life to the Lord, and, and I, was, um, go, I was, happened to be in the military at the time, and I was going to a new, a new place where I was going to be stationed for a few years. And uh, I had left the old life behind at that point, and I was determined to walk faithfully and to serve the Lord because man, he, had just, he had just done such a work in my heart at that time. And I got there, and uh, I was, you know, I was with a bunch of people that were doing the same kind of stuff that I had been doing in the past, and they wanted me to join in with them. And as soon as they found out that I didn't, I was called the Holy Roller, Goody Two Shoes. I mean, I was kind of like, you know, vilified because I wasn't doing what they were doing, and, and it was hard because. Before that, you know, I, there, I mean, somebody say, hey, guys, you want, you want to go do this with me? I'm like, yeah, I'm there, man. Because, the, you know, I just, my life was just heading in that wrong direction. But when I finally gave my heart to the Lord, it's like, you know what? Nothing is going to dissuade me. I, I, I want to do this. And so, I, you know, I, I just, I took it, you know, and, and uh, I actually had opportunities to minister to a couple guys that were struggling in their walks. And so, you know, that's what uh, we're talking about here, steadfast of purpose asking the way to Zion with their faces toward it, cleaving to the Lord. They say, let's be joined to the Lord. Or or in today, you know, in the New Testament, we talk about abiding in the Lord. Let's abide in the Lord. Let's cleave to the Lord. And notice it says, come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will will not be forgotten. Notice that it's a plural there. Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord. And I think about that. You know, when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person's heart and does this radical transformation, and then you find out that there's someone else there that has that same transformation, God's doing a work in there. Man, you just, you, just, you just come together. I mean, that's what the fellowship's all about. We're all here together. We're, we're trying to draw closer to the Lord to be more like Him. And there's that natural tendency to want to be in fellowship, and it's a good thing. Well, this prophecy had its near fulfillment with the Medo-Persian invasion of Babylon. Because nationally, you know, up until this point, 
they kept struggling with idolatry over and over and over again. God would send prophets, and there would sometimes there would be some revival in the land. Different kings would there would be revivals with some of the kings, but they kept slipping back into idolatry. But once the seventy-year captivity in Babylon was over, as a nation now, when they came back into the land, idolatry was no longer an issue for them. But you know, the Jewish people today, by and large, they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so if you look at books like Daniel chapter 5 and Revelation 17 and 18, we find out that there's a, a far fulfillment that's going to be taking place in the final destruction of Babylon. You know, the Bible tells us at the end of the tribulation when Jesus returns with his saints in Zechariah 12.10, it says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they've pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So there's, there's a complete fulfillment that's, that's yet to happen. Verse 6, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have turned them away on the mountains. They have gone from mountain to hill. They have forgotten their resting place. You know, the Bible, I think, makes it perfectly clear that each individual is responsible for the choices that they make in life. But here God sees his people as sheep that have been led astray by their shepherds. Who are those? Those are the prophets, the priests, the kings of Israel that led the people astray. And think about this. God looks at those people as his sheep that, that have been, they've been led astray by their shepherds, and yet he punishes his sheep who went astray. But if God punishes his sheep who went astray, how much more of a punishment will those receive who led them astray? This is an ongoing problem even today. There are false shepherds today who are leading people astray. And I, I just shudder to think of what God's, you know, the judgment that's going to fall on those people who not only themselves are going astray, but they're leading others astray in false doctrines, false teachings. It's, it's, it's an ongoing problem. We're on Wednesday nights. We just started our study in Galatians. And uh, we kind of paused on this one point here that Paul brings up in Galatians. And in uh, chapter 1, he says, There are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. I mean, that's a serious judgment, bringing others, taking, uh, leading others astray. Verse 7 continues, All who found them have devoured them. And their adversaries said, We have not offended, because they have sinned against the Lord, the habitation of justice, the Lord, the hope of their fathers. So you get this picture, the Babylonians are basically saying, Hey, you know, God is using us to punish those people, because they sinned against God. They sinned against their God. And, uh, you know, in Psalm 137, there's a, a psalm in verse 1, it says, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, and yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung up our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For, those, for there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
you get the picture that they were being mocked as you know as they not only were they humiliated not only had they been carried off into captivity but then they're being mocked and ridiculed and made fun of by their captors you know one of the one of the things that the nazis did during the holocaust was you know they kind of justified their murdering of jews by saying well hey these guys rejected jesus they're the ones that crucified jesus you know, anti-Semitism, and that's, of course, a net form of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is alive and well even today. Unfortunately, it even takes place, I believe, personally, in some denominations. And I, take it, I think it takes place in the form of replacement theology. Now, I don't know if you know what replacement theology is. I'm not an expert on all those things. But basically, this, the argument is the Jews rejected their Messiah... And now all the blessings of Israel have been transferred to the church. And so the nation state of Israel, they're just a bunch of people that really they don't belong in the land because God has transferred everything to the church. Now the church is God's blessed. And yet you read Romans chapter 11 and, God, and Paul says God's not done with, with the Jew. There's a time when they are all going to turn to him. Verse 8. Move from the midst of Babylon. Go out of the land of the Chaldeans, and be like the rams before the flocks. For behold, I will raise and cause to come up against Babylon an assembly of great nations from the north country, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be captured. Their arrows shall be like those of an expert warrior. None shall return in vain, and Chaldea shall become plunder. All who plunder her shall be satisfied, says the Lord. Verse 11 Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain and you bellow like bulls, your mother shall be deeply ashamed. She who bore you shall be ashamed. Behold, the least of the nations shall be a wilderness, a dry land and a desert because of the wrath of the Lord. She shall not be inhabited, but she shall be wholly desolate. Everyone who goes to Babylon shall be horrified and hiss at all her plagues. God had used Babylon to chasten his people. And the Babylonians should have done it in humility and fear the Lord. But instead, they did it in pride and they basically gloated over uh, the Jews. And so now the Lord's prophetic command here to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 14. Put yourselves in array against Babylon all around, all you who bend the bow. Shoot at her, spare no arrows, for she has sinned against the Lord. Shout against her all around, for she has given her hand. Her foundations have fallen, her walls are thrown down. For it is the vengeance of the Lord. Take vengeance on her. As she has done, so do to her. Cut off the sower from Babylon and him who handles the sickle at harvest time. For fear the oppressing sword, everyone shall turn to his own people and everyone shall flee to his own land. Verse 17, Israel is like scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. Now at last, this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, Thus says the Lord of of hosts, the God of Israel, 
Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. But I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. And so just as God had delivered Assyria into the hands of the Babylonians, now he would deliver the Babylonians into the hands of the Medes and the Persians. Verse 20, In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. Because God had chastened His people, and they had responded in true repentance, you know, as we looked at there in verses 4 and 5, He would forgive their sin and pardon their iniquity. You, you know, you look at all this destruction and God's decreeing doom and everything for Babylon and these other nations, but man, I tell you, there is mercy and grace in the book of Jeremiah too. Mercy and grace towards His people. You know, you and I, we've been given that same promise. In 1 John 1.9, the Bible says if we confess our sins, and He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That mean, and that means not only our past and our present sins, but our future sins. I mean, that really just blows me away when I think of God's grace and God's mercy. It's truly overwhelming. You think about how God is speaking about His people here. They're going to be going back into the land of Israel. Centuries later, they're going to reject the Messiah. They're going to crucify Him. And God knows this. God knows what their, heart, what their hearts are like and, and what's going to happen, and yet He's still willing to bring them back into the land and pardon them of their sin. I mean, we serve a God that extends grace to us, and we certainly don't deserve it, right? I mean, that's what, God's, that's what grace is. It's, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. I mean, it's, it's something that you and I can't earn. We don't deserve it, but that's what grace is. But when you look at it, it's just overwhelming, Verse 21, Go up against the land of Marathim, against it, and against the inhabitants of Pecod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. Marathim is a, another name for Babylon, and Pecod is a, a tribal area in the southeastern area of Babylon. Verse 22, A sound of battle is in the land, and of great destruction. How the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken. How Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. Again, God used Babylon as his hammer to crush not only Israel, but all the nations around Israel. But because of their pride and because of their arrogance, now he would crush Babylon itself. Verse 24, You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and also caught, because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened His armory, and has brought out the weapons of His indignation. For this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come up against her from the farthest border. He's speaking to the Persians now, the Medes and the Persians. Come up against her from the farthest border. Open her storehouses. Cast her up as heaps of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bulls, 
Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day of punishment, excuse me, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. You know, when the Babylonians ransacked and destroyed Jerusalem, they, they didn't just do that, they looted the temple as well. And in his pride and in his arrogance, the last king of Babylon, Belshazzar, on the eve of the destruction of Babylon, he profaned the holy vessels that had been taken, hauled off to Babylon. He profaned them. Um, they were the vessels that were used in the temple by bringing them out for a drinking party. Basically, they were just having a, just a, a, a crazy night of drinking and, and, and you know, hooting and hollering, whatever it was. But, but uh, they profaned the temple. God would punish them for that. Verse 29, Call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow, and camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done, due to her. For she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets, and all her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time that I will punish you. The most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. You get the idea here. It's the pride of Babylon, their haughtiness. They contended against the Lord, and God is against them as a result of that. And you know, you can go all through the Bible, and there's plenty of verses and scriptures that point out that God is against the proud. And I think if you know your Bible and you're a believer this morning, I mean, you, you understand that, right? God is against the proud, He's for the humble. And, and we could maybe just rattle that off. And sometimes, you know, it's just, it's just a word that we say. Well, what does it mean God is against the proud? What, what does it mean to be prideful? What does pride look like in a person? Well, first of all, you're not willing to admit your own fault. You're not willing to repent. You're not willing to seek forgiveness because in your mind you've done nothing wrong. That's That's pride. Pride also comes in the form of considering yourself spiritually superior to others. It's interesting how we Christians do that. You know, someone comes in and maybe they're not dressed like us or maybe they, they do things a little different than us. And, and we kind of always put people kind of in a, in a place, you know, especially as you get to know them, you go, okay, well, they're there in their spiritual walk. I'm here, but they're there. Those people who are there. And we put everybody kind of in our minds, you know, where we think they fit spiritually. And that's pride. It's pride when we start looking at others and we go, well, they're not as spiritual. They don't have that deep as an understanding as I do. Or, you know, they don't have that deep experience that I do. That's, that's pride. God's against that, by the way. God's against that kind of pride. Considering others less than you. Pride also comes in the form of doing things in your own strength and not seeking the Lord instead. In other words, not needing the Lord. Being independent of Him. I can handle it. I'll call you when I need you, God. How often do people, you know, you see people when they go through a terrible time in their lives, that's when they get on their knees and pray, and that's when they seek God. But when, when things are going okay, it's like, I got it under control. That's pride. Being a hypocrite. Pretending 
to be someone or something you're not so that people can't see your true character. That's also pride. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And I think sometimes the danger with reading scriptures is that we can think of it in abstract ways. Instead of, you know, we just say, yeah, God's against the proud. The proud. Well, what is the proud? What does pride look like? And we have to examine ourselves in light of scriptures. Verse 33, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. Their Redeemer, and that word is the goal, which means the kinsman Redeemer, is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will thoroughly plead their case, that He may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon, and against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers, and they will be fools. A sword is against her mighty men, and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in their midst. When it's referring to the mixed peoples, the idea is being foreign mercenaries and allies. People, soldiers that were just, you know, they're foreigners, but they were there fighting alongside for Babylon. So it says, the sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in her midst and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures, and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up. For it is the land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. All these things that the Babylonians took pride in, all those things that they put their trust in, all those things that they worshipped, God's saying it's going to be destroyed. Princes. What does princes refer to? It refers to position and status. Wise men and soothsayers. You know, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans especially, they prided themselves in their wisdom and their intellect. They worshipped themselves, basically. Mighty men, mercenaries, horses and chariots. That speaks about strength and power, military might. God was against that. A sword was coming against that. Treasures. Well, that's basically wealth and possessions. And then it says waters. And I think that's referring to their security or their accomplishments, their ingenuity. Because if you looked at ancient Babylon, the city of Babylon, it was built around the Euphrates River. In fact, the river ran through the city. And they were, you know, they didn't worry about foreign armies coming in and invading them from the city or from the river because what they did was they had these gates basically that that sunk down into the water that were locked so that there's different entrances from the river up into the city that people couldn't get there because they had these big iron gates. But God says their waters would dry up. And it's very interesting because on the eve of Babylon's invasion, the Medes and the Persians they diverted the waters of the Euphrates River. And as they diverted the water, the river level started dropping. And it got down to the point where it was waist deep. And then the Persians, the Medes and the Persians, they basically waded through the water, waded right underneath those gates, walked right into the city and conquered it. The next morning, there they are, right there in the city. All these things the Babylonians trusted in 
all these things that they took pride in and worshipped, God destroyed. He says, man, they're insane with their idols. Again, that's another term that we use, you know, idolatry, idols. And sometimes it's, you think about that in, in an Old Testament term. You, you think of that as this little statue. It's interesting. When I was growing up, I always thought of idols. You know, you, you know the Buddha thing? You know, the, I always thought of that as an idol. You know, it's maybe about this tall, some fat guy with a belly, you know, sticking out. And, you know, and you put incense by it. But it's interesting. When we went to Israel, we went to uh, uh, Tel Hazar. I think that's where it was, where we were. And we went into this place, and they had Canaanite idols, and they were smaller than Barbie dolls. I mean, they were these little little stick figures, and I'm like, they're worshiping that. You know, but idolatry comes in many forms. We have to ask ourselves, are we idolaters? What do you mean by that? I, we're Christians. Well, let me ask you this. Do you worship or put your trust in anything other than the Lord God? Because anything that gets in the way of your relationship with the Lord, it's idolatry. It's putting something in place of God. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can get wrapped up in that. You know, religion can be an idol if it stands in the way of a relationship with God. You know, a person might say, well, you know, I'm baptized I'm, or I've been confirmed. I'm good to go. I remember there was a guy that I was, used to work with and nice guy. But, I mean, he was, he was doing drugs and sleeping with this girl. And, I mean, he was just living like a heathen, basically. And I remember one time I came to him. I said, man, I said, you know, I look at your life. And, you know, you're just heading the wrong way. And I started sharing the gospel with him. He goes, hey, oh, oh, oh stop, stop, stop. He goes, I'm a Christian. Are you, I'm, you are? He goes, yeah. You know, I prayed the prayer, man. I was baptized. I'm like, wow. You know, and, and we continue to talk with him. But, you know, people have that attitude where it becomes an idol. Hey, I've, I've gone through those steps. Now I'm good to go. Now I can live my life any way I want. Instead of pursuing a relationship with the Lord. I think sometimes church membership can be an idol. Hey, I mean, I, I go to church. I'm a member of that church, so I'm good to go. Well, what about your relationship with the Lord? Do you have one? So we have to ask ourselves these questions. Verse 39. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell uh, shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in, the genera- in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor the Son of Man dwell in it. If you don't know, and you probably do know, but ancient Babylon is located in modern-day Iraq. In 1982... Saddam Hussein planned to rebuild the ancient city of Babylon. And the archaeologists kind of freaked out because to their horror and dismay, he started, they, you know, the ancient city of Babylon, there was like two or three feet of bricks from the, from the original palace, Nebuchadnezzar's palace. And Saddam Hussein, in his self-grandizement or whatever, his delusions of grandeur, wanted to build a, a, a palace again, kind of to worship him. And on top of those bricks, he started placing new bricks. And the archaeologists are all, you know, you're desecrating a, you know, the site and everything. Well, it's interesting. About 10 years after he placed those bricks, they, the new ones already started cracking. In 2003, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, um, there were soldiers that ended up going to this palace. And as they looked at it, they kind of realized, yes, it looks, it looks, you know, spectacular. But it looked like nobody had lived there. It was more 
uh, symbolic than functional. And by the time the U.S. soldiers entered the palace, vandals and looters had stripped all the gold fixtures and the furniture out of there, and they broke all the stained glass windows, and basically the soldiers used that as a place to pitch their tents. See, Sodom attempted to reestablish ancient Babylon, but it failed. You know, some think that ancient Babylon will be rebuilt in the last days, and it will become the center of world commerce, but it will be destroyed during the Great Tribulation, and this this will be completely fulfilled, and, you know, uh, time will tell, I guess. Verse 41. Behold, the people shall come from the north, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for the battle. Against you, O daughter of Babylon. The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him. Pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them at the noise of the taking of Babylon. The earth trembles and the cry is heard among the nations." You know, when we read, and of course, you know, we're going through the book of Jeremiah. Much of this prophecy here against Babylon, it's almost identical to a prophecy given in Jeremiah chapter 6 against Judah, describing how Babylon was going to uh, destroy Jerusalem and take the people captives. A lot of the verses here are very similar. In fact, last week when we were in uh, Jeremiah 49, some of these verses are almost exactly identical to the prophecy against the destruction against Edom. And I was dwelling on them. Like, why is, there, why is there so much similarity here? And I think the reason why, I think we have plenty of verses in the New Testament that point it out. In Romans 2.11, for example, Paul says that there is no partiality with God. Ephesians 6, 9, Paul writes, And you masters, do the same things to them, speaking about your servants, your slaves, giving up, threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Colossians, Paul writes in chapter 325, But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Peter writes this, and if you, at verse, chapter 1, verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And what I realized here is that God used the same standard of measure against the Edomites that he used against the Babylonians that he used against his own people, the Jews. Because God... God has no partiality. You know, each person, uh, you know, 
God's going to judge each man, each woman. We're all going to stand before Him one day. You know, so often when we read Scriptures, you know, we think it applies to someone else. Man, I wish that person would hear this message because, man, they really need it, you know. And so often we, we, don't, we don't take it to heart and go, you know, what about me? Where am I at? Am I walking in pride? Am I walking in rebellion and sin? Have I, have I truly repented? Have I truly turned back to the Lord? Am I seeking Him? And the Scriptures are written for our benefit too in this day and age. So God shows no partiality with respect to sin. But on the other side of that, the Bible also teaches us that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've come from. God desires you to have a relationship with Him. In Romans 10, verse 80, it says, But what does it say? The Word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon Him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So we look at the, the judgments and we go, yeah, God, you know, people that are prideful, people that are in rebellion against Him, God's going to judge them and He's going to judge them the same. But on the other hand, if we turn to Him in true repentance, if we diligently seek Him, He'll forgive us of our sins. He'll cleanse us and He'll give us a relationship and, and eternal life to spend forever with Him. You know, there's no one who's beyond God's mercy and God's grace. 